Section 8 of Fires and Firefighters by John Kenlon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 The Trade of Arson. It is calculated that incendiarism for the purpose of obtaining insurance money is responsible for the destruction annually in New York alone of four million dollars worth of property. This represents a daily loss of ten thousand dollars or more than the yearly pay of a major-general in the United States Army. Needless to say, this criminal practice is not confined to New York. Every large town in America suffers in a greater or less degree from the attentions of the genus Firebug. Now, for this state of affairs, it is impossible wholly to acquit the great insurance companies, for latterly it has become usual to accept fire risks of considerable value without instituting the searching inquiries, which are a sine qua non for the completion of business in Europe and elsewhere. Of course, cases of arson do now and again occur in any community, but that a gang of criminals should find it both easy and profitable to carry on incendiarism as a regular calling seems almost incredible, and bespeaks a species of toleration which is scarcely to the credit of the community." Quite apart from danger to public property, and unnecessary loss to insurance companies, stands out another point in the most vivid of relief, namely the dire peril to human life, of which these fiends take no account. This murderous trade appears to be peculiarly lucrative, and judging from statistics it offers little risk to the perpetrators of discovery and punishment. In addition, also, it requires no stock in trade, such, for instance, as is necessary to the forger. It demands no courage, such as characterizes and lends an air of romance to the train bandit. And most assuredly it makes no great call upon mental ingenuity, such as marks the operations of a bank swindler. Hence the firebug may without doubt be classed as belonging to the lowest and most degraded portion of the criminal population. Not that necessarily the votaries of this occupation lack a certain amount of spurious education. On the contrary, they are drawn from all grades of society, the less educated being as a rule the tools employed to do the actual burning. In this category must also be included those misguided individuals who, finding themselves in financial difficulties, regard a fire as the simplest method of retrieving their shattered fortunes. Frequently such people employ the services of the professional firebug and share the proceeds. Thus fire-making has become a regularly accepted calling, which it is most urgent should be stamped out in its entirety once and for always. Were additional evidence of the accuracy of these statements needed, it is surely supplied by the following curious circumstances. During the spring, fires in the fur trade are prevalent while hat and cap fires usually occur in the summer. From September to December it is peculiar that the ready-made cloak and suit trade suffers severely, while any change of fashion in millinery or feathers is invariably followed by a corresponding destruction of the old stock through fire. The advent of the motor-car heralded the burning out of hundreds of stables, and now the influx of cheap automobiles into the market appears to approach to overproduction 
since garage outbreaks have become practically incessant. All of which is, of course, only circumstantial evidence, though it may be aptly remarked that in some countries this alone is sufficient to bring a man to the gallows. Insurance officials argue that in order to collect insurance on anything alleged to have been destroyed, proof of loss must be submitted. But for the professional firebug this matter presents no difficulty. His system of operation includes a full knowledge of whence he can obtain ample supplies of false invoices, forged affidavits, and perjured testimony. In some cases, goods and furniture which have done duty in other fires are previously placed on the premises in order that all necessary proof of loss may be at hand. This business of incendiarism is responsible to a large degree for that undesirable class of persons known technically as public fire adjusters. It is the self-imposed duty of these functionaries, immediately on the occurrence of a fire in any part of the city, to hasten to the scene and get into touch with the insured person affected by the outbreak. The keenest competition exists among them, and cases have been known when as many as ten were seeking the same insured party at the same time, and one of them succeeded in obtaining his client by virtually kidnapping him and carrying him away in an automobile. Ostensibly, these adjusters play the part of philanthropists. Actually, they are influenced solely by motives of keen self-interest. Instances have been known where such men have obtained as many as five separate contracts from an insured person immediately after a fire, each contract promising ten percent of the insurance money to the adjuster, the assured thus being compelled on settlement to give up fully fifty percent of his claim against the insurance companies. Although there are no doubt many honest agents, it is desirable to point out some of the questionable methods employed especially in cases where arson charges are involved, thus giving direct encouragement to incendiarism. It is safe to hazard that if many incendiaries had to appear personally in the offices of insurance companies or of their accredited agents, and could not conceal themselves behind the crooked adjuster, the actual facts connected with many questionable fires would be revealed. The most pernicious practice imaginable is that of the agent who, when he solicits business amongst known firebugs, has a distinct understanding with them that fires are to follow the issue of policies. This incriminates these gentlemen equally with their clients, and they most richly deserve a long term of imprisonment. Others, again, instruct policyholders how to pad their claims against companies without any appreciable risk of discovery, Hence, human nature being admittedly frail, it is not uncommon for an individual to realize that by this means he can secure a maximum financial return for a minimum outlay. The writer would here point out that incendiarism does not only affect the social fabric of the community, but multiplies to an inconceivable degree the labors of the firefighting force. For generally speaking, the incendiary lays his fire in such a way that it is of an obstinate character, and only too likely to involve its surroundings. Also, it is deplorable to relate that women are among the most expert in this nefarious trade. Many an innocent-looking curtain and gas-jet blaze, or clothes-closet fire, 
is the skillfully executed work of the female incendiary. In this connection, the following may be taken as illustrative of the lengths to which women will go in their efforts to make money by this means. During the night of August 15, 1910, a motorman on a trolley car passing down Third Avenue in Brooklyn noticed a red glare of a fire in one of the houses on the route. With commendable curiosity, he stopped and investigated. He saw a woman, apparently sleeping, near the doorway of a shop, with her two children beside her, one an infant in a cradle. Being a hot night, there was nothing particularly surprising in this. The shop door, however, was ajar, and the motorman peeped in. A strong smell of benzene assailed his nostrils, and in his anxiety to ascertain the cause, he pushed the door further open and stumbled upon two little bonfires blazing merrily. Promptly arousing the apparently sleeping woman, he turned in the alarm. Other tenants in the premises, which contained a number of families and children, rushed down and attempted to put out the flames. Then the sleeping beauty of fiction became the shrew of fact, and a wicked one to boot. "'Don't do that!' she screamed angrily. "'You will only spread the fire. Let the fireman put it out.' Her peculiar anxiety not to have the outbreak promptly extinguished aroused suspicion, and investigations were made. Firemen found several wide-mouthed bottles in differing parts of the shop, all containing kerosene, around their necks being tied cords which led to a main string passing out under the door to where this ingenious lady had been pretending to sleep. Her explanation of this paraphernalia was unintentionally humorous. She suggested that it must have been the action of a wicked burglar. This naive proposition, however, did not satisfy the authorities, and after a severe cross-examination she admitted that the fire had been made at the instigation of a so-called adjuster. This enterprising agent, learning that she had only thirty cents left in the world, had glibly pointed out to her the great advantages to be derived from a fire policy followed by a convenient fire. He had dilated upon his success as a professional incendiarist, remarking that in Chicago he had engineered two uncommonly remunerative ventures. In the first, he had made the fire, while the family, in order to avoid suspicion, had gone to a cinematograph show, while in the second case, in order to give some spectacular realism to a bald piece of villainy, he had actually allowed himself to be rescued at the crucial moment by the fire department. Acting upon this information, the police made inquiries and quickly ran to earth the promoter of this dastardly plot. Brought face to face with his accuser, a dramatic scene ensued. The woman, upon it being pointed out to her that she had endangered the lives of numerous innocent children through the inhuman character of her act, completely broke down and exclaimed, I didn't want the fire. I didn't do it. I will tell the truth to show that I made a mistake in being influenced by this wicked man. He is a firebug and has made many fires in Chicago. It only remains to be said that the woman received a well-merited sentence of five years' penal servitude, while the community will be freed from the attentions of her accomplice for double that period. One more account of feminine ingenuity— a lady residing in an apartment house with her three children had as her sole lodger an old soldier with a wooden leg. 
one morning she peremptorily gave him notice to leave that same day and within twenty-four hours a regrettable and of course accidental fire gutted the flat the insurance company concerned paid her claim without demur the sufferer removing without delay to a more commodious quarters in another part of the town after a short sojourn there she announced her intention of paying a visit to the seaside the night following her departure some children sleeping in the apartment below the one she had vacated were awakened by hot water dripping upon them from the ceiling immediate investigation resulted in the discovery of a fire in the flat above the heat of which had melted the water pipes and had thus been instrumental in arousing the inmates of the house to the peril of their position after the fire department had suppressed the outbreak a remarkable state of affairs was disclosed sideboards cupboards and closets were found to be literally packed with ingenious time plants guaranteed successfully to smoulder for several hours and then by bursting into flame to work their wicked will upon everything inflammable in their vicinity under the bed was also discovered a wooden box stuffed with papers and cotton waste soaked in oil and surmounted by the inevitable candle in the presence of such glaring evidence the woman was obliged to cut short her holiday and return in the company of a police officer the insurance company which had been mulcted in damages over the preceding fire suddenly bethought itself of the unusual claim of sixty dollars for one wooden leg and upon making inquiries found that the possessor of this means of locomotion had never mourned its loss brought to trial after a lengthy hearing the accused was found guilty of arson in the first degree the writer feels that he cannot do better than give the exact words of the judge who passed sentence upon this callous fiend there are certain crimes which are so revolting in their utter disregard of human life that one wonders at the cold-blooded calculation necessary to perpetrate them such a crime is arson in the first degree for which crime you were indicted and for which you have been convicted in a lesser degree after a careful trial the first woman found guilty of this crime here in twenty years i am convinced that you were responsible for the previous fire in your former home and when you found that you were not suspected of that crime you planned this affair and at the same time increase the insurance upon your property when the defendant is a woman a mother who with fiendish indifference for the lives of two families in her house with four little children in one and two in the other acts as you have such a deed passes human understanding upon any other hypothesis save that you were capable of becoming a murderess by that midnight fire arranged in your rooms with the candles set in oil-soaked combustibles you absent to avoid suspicion and all for the paltry insurance money you hoped to get i have never seen a cooler a more calculating prisoner no womanly sympathy is here simply a fire fiend trying to secure money at any cost any feeling of pity or sympathy for you at this hour i must suspend before my stronger feeling of duty towards the people of this community whose lives and property have twice been in jeopardy through your act you are a menace to this city of homes and i therefore sentence you to remain in prison for a term of not less than fourteen years and not more than fourteen years and six months 
comment upon the above is superfluous unless it be to say that never was a sentence so richly deserved because it is almost inconceivable that women should descend to such depths these instances of female depravity have been given precedence in the role of dishonor connected with incendiarism but let it not be imagined that the crimes of men in this direction are any less horrible or less callous the story of samuel brant is of recent occurrence and is one of the few instances where a firebug has been caught red-handed brant openly boasted that he had worked up his profession into a high art and that no fire-marshal would ever suspect him of the many charges which could be placed to his account with two other men he arranged to set fire to a certain flat in brooklyn and it may have been his overconfidence which gave the clue to the ever-vigilant police department unknown to brant he had been under surveillance for some time and the exact hour at which the fire was to take place had been discovered the fire-marshal being in the know arranged that several of his staff should disguise themselves as street-cleaners and peddlers and loiter about in the vicinity of the premises in a push-cart beneath a load of potatoes and other vegetables were concealed a length of hose some hand grenades and various other fire-fighting apparatus all these precautions were taken in order not to arouse brant's suspicions but just at the moment when all arrangements had been perfected a guileless policeman very nearly caused the ruin of the plan he had stationed himself so near to the house in question that it was feared brant might take alarm and make his escape through the medium of a woman a note was sent to the officer stating the case and asking him to leave his beat for the time being almost immediately after the departure of the policeman smoke was noticed to be issuing from the windows of the apartment in question and brant accompanied by one of his accomplices was seen to hurry from the house this was the signal for the supposed street cleaners to throw aside their brooms and for the peddlers to advance nearer with their innocent-looking push-cart rapidly they closed in on the two men who remarkable to say showed fight since the genus firebug does not as a rule suffer from a surplus of physical courage they were quickly overcome and handed over to the police the peddlers suddenly developing into first-class firemen who speedily extinguished the flames the fire had been started in a clothes closet and the flat was literally a magazine of combustible material at his trial brant remarked i am a specialist in making fires and i can make them so that no one can catch me the fire-marshal is a joke if he gets you all you have to do is tell him that you were away and get someone to prove it it was proved that brant and his associates worked a regular system one of them would solicit business by going to the owner of a store flat or small business concern and offer to arrange for the insurance at the same time planning the burning of the place his terms were somewhat exorbitant judging at least by that operation which cost him his freedom for fifteen years a policy had been taken out for goods supposed to be worth eight hundred dollars and from this sum no less than five hundred dollars was to be deducted by way of commission or approximately sixty-five per cent of the claim incidentally brant's gang was by no means unique others are known to have operated in chicago and patterson new jersey 
and if they have ceased from their efforts it must in no small degree be due to the active campaign waged lately against all of their kidney by commissioner johnson of the new york fire department who can well claim to be their bitterest foe undoubtedly one of the most dastardly acts in the entire history of incendiarism was the series of operations carried on during the year nineteen twelve by a gang under the leadership of a fiend in human form known popularly as the torch their system of swindling the fire insurance companies was peculiarly atrocious and consisted of obtaining policies on good horses substituting for the same broken-down hacks and then burning the latter in order to collect their claims fortunately for a week prior to the night of one of their projected holocausts the suspects had been watched and their movements had become known to the fire marshal the torch was regarded as a desperate character and hence the fire marshal's assistants who were chosen to surround the stables involved on the night in question were heavily armed while some two hundred yards away two steam fire engines were stationed in readiness for immediate action shortly after midnight the watchers were rewarded by seeing a glare inside the stable and a moment later the torch and his son were observed making their way from the rear of the stable through a hole under the mangers an alarm whistle was blown three revolver shots punctuated the silence a signal to the firemen to hurry with their apparatus and a moment later the two desperadoes were fighting like wildcats in the hands of their captors when an entrance into the stable had been effected it was difficult even for men accustomed to all kinds of human rascality to realize that what they saw was the work of men and not devils there were three fires burning one just inside the doorway a second a few feet away and another in a corner immediately behind seven helpless horses which were tethered to their mangers the coats tails and manes of two of these animals were saturated with gasoline one of them was blind and the other was lame the fire burning inside the doorway was so arranged as to block the only exit in case of possible rescue and it succeeded so well in its intention that for a considerable time it hindered and rendered most dangerous the efforts of the firemen the actual owner of the horses confessed that he had hired the torch to carry out this inhuman task since he had been told that the latter was an expert in that line of business with the utmost callousness this firebug admitted his share in the deal and showed not the least emotion when told that for the next twenty years if the world was so unfortunate as to be encumbered with his presence for that time he would be compelled to make his home at sing sing prison though the writer knows full well the sentiments of humanitarians anent corporal punishment he is unable to dissociate himself from a firm conviction that for crimes of this nature perpetrated with such cold-blooded brutality flogging is the most suitable reward unfortunately the number of stable fires is considerable and the fact that approximately thirty-three per cent of the same are listed officially as cause not ascertained leads to the conclusion that they are of suspicious origin here surely is sufficient food for unpleasant thought for the hand which will apply a match to make a bonfire of a lot of dumb animals 
will most assuredly not hesitate where human lives are involved. In another case, which came under the writer's notice, no less than sixty horses would have perished miserably, but for the prompt action of the fire brigade. Six separate fires, it was found, had been started in the stalls of the stable, each plant consisting of candles surrounded with kerosene-soaked straw. For perpetrators of this kind of outrage, what human punishment can be too great? The following case is of interest as evidencing the truth in that popular phraseology, chickens invariably come home to roost. An enterprising gentleman, who had had a suspicious fire in a candy store, had been carefully kept under supervision, as it was expected that initial success would encourage future operations. One bleak March morning, a police officer was on patrol in the neighborhood of the suspect's store, when he noticed a man with a bundle of newspapers walking briskly down a side street. In a casual way he watched him, and saw him throw something away, which tinkled metallically as it fell on the pavement. The officer picked it up, and found it to be a portion of a toy cash register made of black enameled tin. Putting it in his pocket, he resumed his patrol, and a moment later came upon a motorman who had discovered a fire in the identical candy store under observation, and the alarm was turned in. The place was locked, and there was a strong smell of kerosene. While waiting for the arrival of the fire apparatus, who should turn up but the same man whom the policeman had seen throw away the metal register? The store was completely gutted, and investigation clearly pointed to incendiarism, but direct proof was lacking. It was established that the owner was in serious financial difficulties. His account at the bank consisted only of six cents, and neighbors testified that his checks had been returned marked insufficient funds. Further, shortly before the fire, he admitted that he had borrowed money. This was certainly evidence of a presumptive character, but inadequate to secure conviction. On searching the remains of the fire, however, a charred toy cash register was discovered, minus the portion corresponding to that which had been picked up by the policeman. Confronted with this exhibit, the suspect first declared that he kept several of the same design for sale. Later, under cross-examination, he allowed that for fun his wife had used one and had deposited therein two dollars. The line adopted by the prosecution was that the accused had prepared his store for the fire, and that just prior to his departure he had recollected the two dollars and had broken open the register in order to secure it, carelessly throwing a portion of the same away in the street. Counsel for the defense sought to shatter this theory by producing a brand-new toy register of similar design in court. Triumphantly, he pointed out the following notice. To open this bank, place ten dollars in coin. It will then open automatically. If you don't deposit ten dollars in coin, you will have to get an axe. Where, pleaded the counsel, was the evidence that the accused had ever even possessed an axe? It was obvious that a blaze of this nature, which had not even incinerated a toy cash register, could not so completely destroy a steel axe-head that no trace of it could be found. And the fire department had never suggested that they had come upon any trace of such a thing. 
Further, his client maintained most strongly that the policeman who identified him as the individual who had dropped the portion of the register on the morning of the fire was in error. And in any case, he defied the jury to find any cause to connect the cash box of the accused's wife with that under discussion. It had been proved that the box was unopenable without an axe. Where was the axe? Upon this, the jury retired to consider their verdict. Everything seemed in favor of the prisoner when one of their number asked to inspect the exhibit. Within the space of three minutes, he had disproved the printed statement on its exterior and had opened it with a penknife. That candy storekeeper received a well earned five years' imprisonment. It would be easy to continue multiplying instance upon instance and story upon story to show that the existence of the working incendiary is no figment of the writer's imagination, but rather a fact with which municipalities, fire departments, and insurance companies have got to grapple. It accounts in part for the remarkable discrepancies between fire losses in American cities and those in European communities. During 1910, London had 3,941 fires, Paris 2,030, Berlin, 2,068, and New York, 14,405. For every 100,000 inhabitants, Berlin has 97 fires, London, 81, St. Petersburg, 75, Paris, 74, Vienna, 59, and New York, 300. The fire loss per head of population in the United States generally is nearly five times greater than that of any foreign country. In New York, during 1911, the per capita loss was $2.45, while the average for European cities was about 50 cents, sinking as low as 12 cents in two towns so differently situated as Southampton and Dresden. After making every allowance for climatic differences, structural defects, and the use of inflammable building materials, it is difficult to escape the conclusion that the firebug has a lot for which to answer. Broadly speaking, it is not an exaggeration to estimate 25% of New York fires certainly as of incendiary origin. The insurance risks carried by the 175 companies in New York total the gigantic figure of $40 billion spread throughout the country. Hence it goes without saying that the influence exerted by these corporations, financial and otherwise, is stupendous, and may indirectly control the welfare of the community. There are not wanting those who maintain that insurance companies, within a certain degree, welcome fires as bespeaking business. It is reported that the manager of a Scottish insurance company, in a speech at Edinburgh, said, Were there no fires, there would be no insurance business. And, on the other hand, the greater the fire damage, the greater the turnover, out of which insurance companies make profits. Now, this is only the report of a speech, and quite probably has been transmitted incorrectly, for it most certainly is at variance with the opinions of the insurance officials with whom this writer has come in contact. Rather is the question one affecting the nation as a whole. The search after all classes of business is so keen nowadays, the turnover so tremendous, and the demands of the shareholders for large profits so exacting, 
that directors and others responsible must be pardoned if in their anxiety to do the best for those dependent upon them they accept risks which cooler calculation and difference of environment would show to be preposterous it seems absurd to discuss an evil and then not to suggest the remedy but incendiarism though actively affecting the routine of fire departments and causing fire chiefs endless worry and anxiety properly belongs to a sphere outside the purview of the scientific firefighter it is an excrescence on the social fabric which needs removal by those specially equipped for the task and undoubtedly those referred to are the insurance companies the means and methods to be employed must be left to them for it would be as futile for the writer to tender suggestions on such a highly complicated problem as it would be absurd for underwriters to give him advice regarding the best way to fight a fire in a warehouse filled with explosives but it is satisfactory to be able to state that already signs are not wanting of a general awakening of interest in the subject amongst all classes affected professional and otherwise that is to say the insurance companies are on the move and it is no longer so easy to effect policies on worthless goods while the individual of doubtful financial stability and dubious reputation is likely to experience considerable difficulty in persuading even the most reckless of agents to consider seriously his application towards this happy consummation no one has worked with more energy and goodwill than commissioner johnson of the new york fire department to whose publication on the subject the writer is indebted for many of the illuminating facts used in this chapter it will at least be conceded by all concerned that the introduction of legislation to assist the insurance companies in their laudable efforts by making the punishment fit the crime and thoroughly frightening the firebug by the penalties awaiting him would be a distinct step in the right direction end of section eight recording by maria casper